From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. What we have to keep in mind in the Stone case is that there was a process to get to that jury. Um, Judge uh, Jackson actually struck a number of potential jurors for cause. Um, I believe it was around 80. So she was actually actively winnowing out people who uh, she didn't think, based on what she heard during Vordeer, which is the process of questioning jurors, could be fair. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Juries and jurists have been very much in the news of late. Today, we are sitting down with Scott Sunby, author of A Life and Death Decision, to talk about the Roger Stone and Harvey Weinstein trials. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Morning, Scott. Welcome back to The Explainer. Well, good morning. Thank you. Um, Do we have fair juries? So, such a specific question. Um, I think the answer would be a variation off of Churchill's comment about democracy, that democracy is the worst system ever devised except for all the others. And I think we would probably say that juries are the worst way to decide criminal cases except for all the other possibilities. Right. And it's an interesting situation. As you may know, it's actually a shrinking institution. Uh, less than 2% of all criminal charges are resolved through juries now. In some states like Texas, it's less than 1%, which given how we view it in movies and TVs, that's really the exception, right? So for those of us uh, who study juries, it's sort of like a biologist studying uh, polar bears, Mm -hmm. right? They're getting fewer and fewer and the ice flows are melting and uh, getting smaller and smaller. Um, But they're still obviously incredibly important to our perception of the criminal justice system, as well as the occasional operation. And here's, Catherine, why they're so complicated in terms of that fairness question, is we have a paradox at the core of how we view them. On the one hand, we have sort of this view of the heroic jury, as I call it, where it's 12 angry men. We could grab 12 people off the street and throw them into a room. And because they have these basic American values, they will decide it and get to justice. Mm-hmm. And that's in some of the Supreme Court's opinions with uh, deal with juries, that that's the, the view that they're voicing. But there's also this view, which is sort of the uh, gritty reality view, which is that all of us are products of our background, our ethnicity, our gender, and we bring, as the Supreme Court said, different flavors to the Mm -hmm. jury room. And so we try to be inclusive and recognize we want a jury that includes these different flavors, right? So over time, it used to be basically 12 angry men, right? Mm -hmm. It was all male. And eventually it was like, well, maybe women have a few things to add in and have a different view. Um, And then, of course, race has been huge, uh, to some extent, uh, religion. And so on the one hand, we say we can grab anyone. On the other hand, but we want to make sure that it includes people of this uh, particular demographic or this demographic. And the fact is, we know from social science studies that what demographic you're from, on balance, can affect things. Every individual is an individual. We, of course, know that. 
OJ, right? Jury, right. Sure. But um, so the Capital Jury Project, which I've uh, been involved with over the last 25 years, um, they uh, we found that if there's just one black juror, male black juror on a jury, the chances of a death sentence go down 60%. If there's five white male jurors, the chances independently of that go up 60%. So it's something where we kind of don't want to, on one hand, acknowledge that it might matter who your jury is comprised of. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, we sort of have to acknowledge it. And that conflict, that tension, that paradox it's at the core of so many of these problems. So that kind of, even though it wasn't something we were going to talk to, talk about, that kind of brings me to ask about preemptory challenges. Are there not enough? Are there too many? Should it just be scrape 12 people off the sidewalk who aren't smart enough to get out? So it's, a, yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that the court has really, the Supreme Court has really struggled with, as well as the states in uh, their own systems. And so a peremptory challenge is where after we eliminate jurors for cause, so in theory, the judge is acting as the initial sieve who is going to sort out those jurors who simply can't be fair. Um, And once she has eliminated those, you then have the jury pool from which each side will get to strike a certain number of jurors based on whatever reason they want, except the court says basically race and gender. Mm -hmm. Because for the longest time, there were areas of the country, uh, there's one case out of Alabama where the court said, no black person has served on a jury as far as the memory of time, the memory of man runneth, right? And, and that, so obviously people were using him in a racially and gender discriminatory way. Um, the problem is you're supposed to be able to use a peremptory for any reason that you and your gut feel. And so we use proxies, right, to try to determine whether you're going to be favorable to one side or another. My own view is if you had judges who were really striking for cause in a meaningful way, I would just assume get rid of peremptories. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know. Let the judge pick the jury. Let the, well, not, I wouldn't say the judge pick the jury because it'd be based on randomly who comes out of the jury pool. We eliminate the people who we don't think can be fair um, because they know someone who's a party or, or have been through a similar experience. Um, but the people who are left, it's the first 12 out of the box rather than allowing, as it happens now, the uh, prosecutors strike a certain number, the defense attorney mm-hmm. to strike a certain number, so that, you know, in theory, each is trying to shape the jury. Right. So how does this play out? So it plays out on balance, um, I think, fairly, going back to your initial question, um, in the long run of cases. Uh, there are obviously cases where things go awry. We have DNA exonerations where juries got it wrong, sometimes sentenced people to death uh, who actually were innocent. I think by most people's standards, that would be considered a fail. Yes. Um, But, you know, before we get down on juries for that, we have to remember there were a lot of other actors who in those cases also thought the defendant was guilty. Prosecutors, investigators, uh, the judge who would have presided over it, a lot of people don't realize that a judge has the power to say, hey, listen, I don't think the state has proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm not even going to let this go to the jury. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not so much, I think, a condemnation of the juries in those cases as the process leading up to the trial that adequate investigation wasn't done, evidence wasn't turned over to the defense. Um, That said, sometimes we end up, for example, with all white juries passing death sentences on a black defendant. And certainly the optics are of unfairness. And sometimes, especially if they cannot understand the defense evidence in part because it may be because of his unique upbringing and a poor neighborhood as a gang member or whatever, I think we then do have a risk of injustices, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why we have to be really cognizant that we're not allowing the jury to be shaped, what we just talked about, Mm -hmm. in a way that excludes meaningful parts of the community. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to the last week of jury news, in the jury, in the jurist news, of the Roger Stone case and the the Harvey Weinstein case. Yeah, so the Roger Stone case is is fascinating, right? Um, Because you actually, if you step back from who Roger Stone is um, and ask, you know, would you feel that it was fair if someone was diametrically opposed to everything you stood for and they're now on your jury— you could have a sense of unfairness. It's, you know, if you had a football game between University of Miami and Florida State, and it turns out the head umpire is, in fact, a a rabid FSU fan, you know, and you're the Miami person, every penalty call that goes against you, it'd be, well, of course that's biased, right? Mm -hmm. So the sense of bias is not something that, um, you know, I don't think we can understand. What we have to keep in mind in the Stone case is that there was a process to get to that jury. Um, Judge uh, Jackson actually struck a number of potential jurors for cause. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it was around 80. So she was actually actively winnowing out people who uh, she didn't think, based on what she heard during Vordeer, which is the process of questioning jurors, could be fair. And then, of course, the defense had questioning and was able to use the peremptories. Now, as I understand the motion, they're saying, well, two jurors in particular, but the four women and, uh, is the one they're really focused on or the media has. Um, she didn't reveal like certain Facebook postings and things like that that shows that she actually was much more biased than she uh, was letting on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, social media is making all this which was already tremendously complicated and challenging, uh, a zillion times more Mm -hmm. complicated and challenging. Um, So unless there were some pretty blatant lies and misrepresentations, my guess is that that's not going to be a basis for uh, reversing it. The Weinstein jury, from a jury uh, scholar's perspective, is, is interesting because one of the difficulties with prosecuting sexual assault cases in cases like that where the victim has a continuing relationship with the alleged perpetrator is you know, getting jurors who actually are able to understand that often that is the case because the reaction of many people still is, but certainly was in the past, was, well, why would you keep you know, with somebody who sexually assaulted you or harassed you? And we know through the social science that's actually not that uncommon, right? And so you needed jurors who were sophisticated enough to understand this, right? And I I can't help but wonder whether the Weinstein case might have come out differently, perhaps in a different part of the country. 
Um, there also seems to have been a little bit of a compromise within the jury because they convicted on some counts and didn't convict on others. And my guess is that that was in part jurors sort of striking a deal, which is not uncommon. You know, if you vote for conviction here, I'll vote for acquittal there. Mm-hmm. Um, so juries are communities and they work out their own compromises in, in the jury room beyond what we hear or are able to, to know, but we know that it happens and they'll often tell you about it. Mm-hmm. That said, you had a New York jury and next you're going to have a Hollywood jury who is m- maybe more likely to have familiarity with the Hollywood casting couch system of old and can see even more clearly that, yeah, to get ahead, to get Harvey to help you, you felt that's how you needed to do it. Um, and, and that's possible. Um, it also is something where, of course, you're talking about 12 people. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it would be an LA-based jury. So the odds of getting someone who understands it better are, are great, but you're still talking 12 people out right. of a metropolitan area of, what, a gazillion people, right? And they're already going to know that he was convicted in New York, I assume, which has to play into when you're listening to it, no matter how impartial you feel, I feel like even unconsciously you're going to go, eh. And, 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 you know, in, in high-profile cases like the Roger Stone case or the OJ case, which you mentioned earlier, or uh, the Weinstein case, you know, that is an increasing problem, right, is everybody knows everything, mm-hmm. right, through the news, 24-7 cable, social media. Um, and so, again, going back to her, our heroic jury, mm-hmm. you know, they set all this aside or they don't know about, you know, what's happening. And, of course, that's just not reality. Right. And so how do we deal with juries in 2020, given how much uh, things have changed? And, and I always do find it interesting this way, Catherine, that, you know, juries started off with the idea, jury of your peers were your actual peers, people who knew you. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, well, people know that Sean Sunby's a schmuck, so he must have <laughs> done this, right? And the idea was the more we know about you, the better jurors we can be. Mm-hmm. And of course, now we've kind of gone the, well, the way we treat it the other way, where we want jurors who are complete clean slates. They don't know anything about me. And that's the idea I get a fair right. trial. So we've sort of flipped the idea of what a jury is from its historical origins. I think that's good. Because often people were convicted of being witches and all because they were the eccentrics in the community and everybody knew that. Right. But, um, you know, it, and, and even then juries were an improvement. I mean, it replaced things like trial by ordeal or uh, were you a witch? Did you sink when we tied rocks to you and threw you in? I mean, those were supposed, those <laughs> were, when you asked me, are juries fair? They're definitely fairer than that, right? <laughs> and I still think they're even more fair than other systems like should we have judges. Because even if we have a, a panel of three judges, you know, judges are human and mm. the sort of gritty reality view applies to them every bit as much as it does to juries. And I'd rather have 12 citizens mm-hmm. than, especially with the increasing politicization of the, uh, Judicial uh, ju- system. Ju- yeah, yeah. the judiciary. Where do you find 12 people who live under a rock? Yes. <laughs> um so we talked a little of, about antics, um, but what is the the impact of Weinstein's lawyer, you know, going on television and saying, "Listen here, you jurors," and writing op eds? You jurors should be paying attention to this. So again, 
Uh, I'm going to give the classic, it's a, it all depends, nuanced answer, right, right of the law professor. Because part of you recoils from that, right? Well, why are they trying it in the public? Um, I have more sympathy than I think a lot of people do for defense attorneys um, in the situation. Because remember that the prosecutor, when he or she announces the prosecution, it's often with great fanfare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a drug bust, they have the 18 kilos of cocaine piled in front of them, the 42 submachine guns, and we have now caught the biggest drug dealer in, you know, Miami, right? That's not, uh, you know, plain fair if the defense then cannot say, hey, wait a minute, but you're saying my guy's involved and he wasn't and we want to tell you why and get some of that out. So if we had a complete... But during the, during the trial, but, during sure. the deliberations to be... And, and I was going to say that... the clouds. Yeah, and, and that's the fair point, right, is that um, at some point... Um, we have to say, well, the trial has now moved from the uh, media uh, realm into the courtroom. And usually, actually, lawyers can get in trouble ethically uh, if they try their case outside of the courtroom mm-hmm. um, in a way that could bias the jury, right? Especially if it's information which um, they may not otherwise have access to, right? Because we have right, you know, some strict rules of evidence. And, yeah. Um, and so that's where you get into trouble. But sort of the initial situation, I, I, I can, right. you know, part of when you hire a defense attorney now, mm-hmm. I think if you have the resources, is to hire someone who can make a public relations pitch as well as going to be good in the courtroom, which, of course, does sort of aggravate inequities because the more wealth you have, the more... The more Gloria an attorney Alred's you can you get can exactly get, right. Gloria Elred's a great example. Um, whereas if I'm Joe Schmo arrested and you know, there are many great public defenders, but they are also tremendously overworked and they don't have a chance to go to the Miami Herald and explain this is why my person's being railroaded, right? Because mm-hmm. that person is one of twenty cases which they may have to handle that day. Mm-hmm. Um Speaking of that, along that same line, so Trump is tweeting out, this is unfair, Roger Stone, oh, the judge, oh, the jury. That's kind of a new, a newer thing. But having the president weighing in on on judges especially seems a terrible new. So, and, and I would draw a dramatic difference between that, what Trump is tweeting and the defense attorney saying my client is being misunderstood right. because one is being an advocate for someone who they are charged constitutionally with zealously representing. The other is someone who is in a position of power and trust attacking the very integrity of the system. And um, I would like to think that every citizen, but certainly every lawyer, whatever their ideology uh, would recoil from this. Um, it, it's the same way of trying to undermine confidence in the election uh, mm-hmm. system, right? I mean, the, the whole thing starts to collapse if we start to say, it's just all corrupt, it's just all politics, um, and, and, and just give up on the idea that fairness can be reached. And you know, that might sound a little contradictory, given mm-hmm. that I think I started off with saying, well, fairness is kind of a elusive quality. Tell me, what do you mean by fairness, right? Um, that said, I don't think that keeps us from always striving to try to be fair and to view this as two 
you and I might come from very different backgrounds, but we will try to reach an understanding versus this is open warfare in the jury room. Mm -hmm. It's all political. And this judge, you happen to get an Obama judge, you know, say, now you're screwed. Oh, you got a Trump judge. Now you're golden. It's really, really, really. Can I throw in one more really worrisome? Yes. Um, So that takes us right up to partisanship. And are we seeing a a shift in the judiciary tilting one way or the other? So I I mean, is the judiciary getting loaded? (laughs) So I think there. I I think the answer is yes, Um, and and I say that with great reluctance. Um, One of the few. things that I like about growing older is I've become my own longitudinal study. And I think back to when I went into the law, and I'm sure that people who knew me would tell you that I I, I was probably remarkably naive and wore rose-colored glasses that were thick as Coke bottles. They were so rose-colored, right? But I honestly thought of the judiciary as people striving to do their best to come up with objective non-political answers, that the Constitution was not a political document, that the law could be implemented in an equal way for everyone, even given all the challenges that existed. We weren't there, but we could get there. And as time has gone on and as the courts have become more politicized, and certainly this has accelerated with uh, the last uh, three years, and McConnell and Trump openly saying, we are, I mean, I don't think McConnell, he might not say packing the courts, but my God, they're trumpeting it left and right. Right, thumb um, on the scales. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, you know, that, that, let's no longer pretend. Now, there is pushback, right? I mean, Chief Justice Roberts uh, is very much like, no, 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 we are neutral. You know, we all get along. But you can get along and still decide things in an ideological way. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not now, I'm not naive enough to think that, oh, it only goes in one direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it does become worrisome where it's now, well, we need to get our judges on the courts, rather than feeling that, you know, sort of, I guess what we call the heroic view of judges, that a judge will always try to do and put her political views aside. Um, I think more and more we realize that we have more difficulty putting our views aside than we would ever want to uh, acknowledge. And, you know, again, the social science is absolutely fascinating Mm -hmm. and disturbing on some level of how much everything we view is that officer telling the truth, right, um, comes in part based on our worldview. So I know you really like the the judge in the Roger Stone case. And could you talk a little about why you think she can withstand the pressure? So I think one reason why I, I do have admiration for how she has handled this, and she has, you should, she does have a great reputation going into the Roger Stone case. And I think that has helped insulate her from some of the critique and pressure that's uh, been directed in her uh, direction. But one reason why I think she is such a good judge is that she is someone who generally rules in a way to try to make the process fair going forward Mm -hmm. rather than injecting her own views. Um, And so it's not so much she's making rulings which are favoring one side or the other. I actually 
even if they were favoring you know, the government against Roger Stone, I would be very disturbed by that. But if you go back and look at how she's handled it uh, from the beginning forward, and even with Stone making comments and all that, you know, a lot of judges might have thrown him in jail for violating the terms of his uh, bail. Um, she went out of her way to try to make sure that the process was as fair as possible. If we we think of you know judges as referees or umpires, and we're saying we want the person where we don't think any penalty call is oh they hate Miami and right, love right. FSU, she's doing her best that way. Um, so yes, I do have admiration for how she's. Uh, done her best not to inject herself into it. It's not about her. Unlike the O.J. Simpson case, where one of the big critiques of Judge Ito was he seemed to like the limelight. He seemed to really enjoy being the center of attention. One does not get that feeling at all here. Uh huh. Well, great. Thank you. We'll you stay tuned. Thank you. All Bye-bye. right. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's Legal Theory Workshop Series, featuring a range of distinguished scholars discussing their innovative legal scholarship over a range of topics. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash faculty forward slash speaker dash series.